You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky Schneider speaks with Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton in our bi-weekly segment, A Few Minutes with the Mayor. That's coming up in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, Monroe County Commissioner Penny Githens announced on Sunday that she will run for the District 62 seat in the Indiana House of Representatives. More coming up in your daily headlines. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Giffins recently announced that she will run for the District 62 seat in the Anna House of Representatives. Commissioner Githens made the announcement on Sunday at the Monroe County Democratic Party headquarters on Madison Street in Bloomington. In the proclamation for the 2022 bid, she shared a list of priorities including increased wages, education, and mental health resources. Speaking from a centrist point of view, Githens says she hopes to bridge the divide between rural and urban voters in a time of heightened polarization. So now as the rest of the country is growing apart, there's a divide between urban and rural, between Democrats and and Republicans. There's a divide between the haves and the haves-nots. There's a divide between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. (laughs) So we've become a nation of winners and losers, and there's no room for compromise, it seems. There's no room for understanding or tolerance. So what has changed during that time? Years ago, a single wage earner could support a family. Now, in a household of four with two adults earning minimum wage, even though they're working full-time, they're not going to make it. They can't pay the rent and provide for food, have health care, and child care. That creates the potential for poverty and homelessness. She claimed that the current minimum wage is far too low in order to make a living, calling to raise the living wage to at least $15 an hour. Keeping the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour has left too many families, especially families with children, in poverty. As a result, Hoosiers spend more of their tax dollars on government subsidies, resulting in fewer investments in our future. Again, that future within education and other things that we need to have. It's hard for me to listen to governors touting phrases like Indiana, a state that works, <laughs> when so many people have dropped out of the workforce, leaving businesses all around the area with help wanted and we're hiring signs. I will fight to raise the minimum wage in Indiana to at least $15 an hour. Giffen's also touched on the value of teachers. She said her mother was a teacher, and at the time, educators were respected and valued much more than they are now. Today, especially in Indiana, teachers are undervalued and underrespected. <clears throat> That's led to a severe teacher shortage, and we're seeing fewer and fewer 
students enroll in teacher training in our colleges and universities here in the state. It's so bad. The numbers of teachers have dropped so much that in some school districts, they cannot offer math beyond Algebra 2. Oh. <laughs> that means the students in those schools cannot make it into the best colleges and universities in our country. Wow. That's not fair to our kids. That's not fair for the future of Indiana. That's not where we should be putting our energy and our money. She said in talking with college students, she finds that more and more of them are not interested in pursuing a career in education due to the inadequate salaries for teachers. In talking with college students, which I really enjoyed doing, I gotta say, many of them have told me they aren't interested in going into education because the wages are so low. How can we expect somebody who comes out of college with a $50,000 student debt to go into teaching? It's not, it just doesn't happen. Today, if a high school senior is interested in going into education, he or she is eligible for one of the 200 scholarships that the state legislature sponsors each year, and 200 additional ones each year, for people who go into teaching. 200 new teachers each year is a drop in the bucket. It's not nearly what we need and not nearly what we, how we should be targeting things. We have to expand salaries and the number of people in education and we have the resources in our state coffers to do that what we need is the political will to make it happen and i will fight again to make teaching the revered profession it deserves to be and to put a stop to the teacher shortages in her speech she outlined the need for more mental health resources she described how the lack of available resources has impacted the community Years ago, Indiana also had a network of uh, mental health hospitals. Again, I grew up in Richmond. There was one two miles away from me. I was in it several times as we you know, took gifts at Christmas or sang Christmas carols or whatever it was. But today, that's all gone, basically. And what has happened to the people that were there? They're in our jails. They're in our prisons, they're on the streets. That's right. Because we are not providing the mental health treatment that people deserve and it would make a difference in our community. Giddens expounded on the issue of poverty and homelessness in Monroe County, saying that the state legislature can do a better job at providing affordable health care for low-income families. As a county commissioner, I work on issues related to homelessness here in Monroe County and beyond. I know that quality and affordable childcare is a problem. In fact, the cost of childcare is one of the top three reasons families become homeless. So as part of my efforts to improve education in Indiana, I will fight for legislation that extends free education to all four-year-olds across the state. This will immediately lessen the burden on some of the families. And if the federal government does not continue childcare vouchers for low-income families, I will fight for the state to appropriate funds as a way to help people return to jobs and to keep our state's economy strong. She says that these are not new problems and have compounded over the decades. Giddens commented that the problems have gotten worse under the GOP supermajority in the state house, and that she hopes to reform the system from the inside. We need these, to reverse these trends. And as I learned long ago, we can't just sit on the sidelines and expect somebody else to do it for us. So today, for these reasons, 
and 100 more, I'm announcing my candidacy for the Indiana House in District 62. According to the Indy Star, the recently passed redistricting map shows that the once reliably red House District 62 will now become more competitive. The new maps exclude Martin, Davies, and Greene counties, while gaining Brown County, more of Monroe County, and parts of Jackson County. According to a report by Dave Askins in the B-Square Bulletin, District 62 incumbent Jeff Ellington announced late last month that he will change his residency to Bloomfield in order to run for the House District 45 seat. Only time will tell whether or not the new redistricting maps will shift the legislative district blue. Up next, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Julia Vaughn, Policy Director for Common Cause Indiana, about how state lawmakers drew the recently passed redistricting map behind closed doors. Vaughn calls for an independent commission to redraw congressional districts every 10 years based on the U.S. Census. We turn to Shapiro for more. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of gerrymandering? Multicolored maps split along complex borders? Confusion? Well, a better way might be to think of gerrymandering as a puzzle in and of itself. If you've ever put together a puzzle, you may have done so with the end goal being that a picture is formed amongst the pieces. Similarly, this desire to form a picture with pieces could be stated as a goal for powerful individuals at the state and congressional levels determining the districts for elections following the national census, which is taken every 10 years. However, the pieces that these leaders put together aren't just for enjoyment. Instead, determining the borders for where a certain population of a state resides either allows for a puzzle with a competitive and equal picture of electoral practice, or such a process can create one-sided races and leaders. Such a strategy is known as gerrymandering, wherein state and local governments will increase or decrease the population size of a certain area of the state in order to limit the impact of that area's votes in elections. In an interview with WFHB News, Julia Vaughn, policy director for the Indiana branch of Common Cause, an organization seeking to eliminate gerrymandering from state elections, explained how unfair redistricting impacts elections, in particular voter turnout in them. There are a lot of different reasons for low turnout here in Indiana, but I think one of the most basic and fundamental ones is unfair districts, districts that were drawn to uh, heavily favor candidates from one party or the other, and particularly at the congressional level. Those are top-of-the-ticket, high-profile races. And unfortunately, over the past decade here in Indiana, we have had only three congressional races that were decided by less than 10 percentage points. However, Vaughn went on to mention that this has not always been the case. We have shown in those rare instances where our votes really matter. I mean, I'm thinking back to the 
Democratic presidential primary in 2008, where Indiana was one of the states that really decided who that candidate was going to be. Was it going to be Hillary Clinton? Was it going to be Barack Obama? And Hoosiers, we knew we are going to be among the people who make this decision and determine who the final candidate will be. So we had great turnout that year. And again, but the past decade, when maps were drawn in 2011 by only one party inside the General Assembly, then we've seen that competition really squelched. Following the 2008 victory of President Barack Obama and Democratic victories in the House and Senate that same year, Republicans were down on their luck and needed a spark to reignite their voice in the political spectrum. This philosophy laid the groundwork for the 2011 midterms, the re-envisioning of gerrymandering, and the technological customization of the modern voter, which Vaughn recounted. It used to be you could recognize a gerrymander. You know, we've all come to recognize a gerrymandered district as one that is crazy shape that meanders all over the place. Well, technology really gained a foothold in 2011, and, and Republicans recognized that it's, it's easy to draw districts that look regular shape, that, you know, are not crazy, meandering, salamander-shaped districts, but they can still have the same impact. And they had the ability, not only with using this GIS software that, that allowed them this more sophisticated approach to gerrymandering, but they're also able to layer on top of the uh, census data all types of other consumer data. You know, what magazines we subscribe to, what organizations we belong to. So they're really able to profile voters and predict pretty accurately how we're going to vote. So what will it take to arrange this abstract political puzzle into one of coherence and satisfaction to those seeking a clear picture of national government? Well, to start discussion, Vaughn provides her own view of a more perfect process. We need to follow the lead of states like Michigan, like Arizona, like California, who have put citizens in charge of this process. You know, we need an independent citizens commission to take charge of drawing the lines, because that's the only way we're going to have a balanced perspective and remove that inherent conflict of interest that exists when you allow politicians to draw the line. Because what ends up happening under that kind of scenario is politicians choose their voters through redistricting rather than voters choosing their politicians on election day. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Now it's time for a few minutes with the mayor, your biweekly segment where we pose questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. And today's issue, Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky Schneider speaks to the mayor about climate action budget compromises and gun safety at schools in Monroe County. All that and more in today's edition of A Few Minutes with the Mayor.
Welcome back to Minutes with the Mayor, where we ask your questions and questions we have about what's going on around town. First of all, start off with the easy question of the day. What is your favorite aspect of fall? (laughs) The colors of the trees. I love the tree colors. It is going quite lovely right now. We have a beautiful maple in our yard that turns orange, red, flaming, so I always look forward to that. Oh, yeah. So, okay, let's dive in then. So, the 2022 budget was passed by the City Council on October 27th. I know we've already kind of talked about it, but now that it's passed, I've got a few questions. One, this one might be a question for the City Treasurer Jeff Underwood, but just a technical question. So $10 million were added to the sustainability and park bonds. Um, how is a bond exactly different than what else is going on in the budget? Well, we uh, the budget was about $170 million uh, all in uh, for the city operations and housing authority and Bloomington Transit and water utility and all those things put together. And I'm very pleased it got passed uh, with a unanimous vote. You mentioned there is a discussion, and I proposed and will will propose to city council next year during the first half of the year a new source of funding for 10 million dollars of bonds uh, every five years and that money would be focused on sustainability investments it'll take the council to vote to put that into place and to create funding for it so that's not actually in the budget it was just a commitment to bring that to them next year and I will. I do support it. I think it's a good thing for us to expand our investment in trails and sidewalks and uh, uh, connectivity and uh, bike lanes and those kinds of things to help us continue to improve what's already a very good city for bikers and walkers, but we can always keep getting better. I'm glad that you said that because I, I didn't. I Sorry, I misunderstood that. But the there's a position... Not the climate action director position, but you said that another position supporting um, Lauren Clement's position in environmental sustainability. So that's not being paid for yet? That is in the budget, yes. That is part of the budget and uh, was part of the negotiations. And several council members had indicated an interest in a a particular kind of position. And we found, uh, I think, a good a good compromise to add a position that will work for our current director of sustainability, Lauren Clemens. And we are in the process of kind of doing the paperwork and internal stuff to get that position formally created. But that will be part of the 2022 budget. Uh, and, and we're very pleased to be able to add uh, more more work on those issues. Awesome. So while, you know, we've been paying attention to these budget deliberations here at a local level. The UN Climate Summit is currently going on in Glasgow, Scotland, and I've been finding some parallels between it as we've been deliberating between the Climate Action Director and kind of compromising on that position you're talking about. Do you have any insight from this local level government situation on the challenges that Biden might face when he gets back from the climate summit to put some of these promises that he's made and put them into place, kind of like how we had the climate action plan. And now when it's actually coming down to the council meetings and the legislation, some things have had to be compromised on. Well, I, thank you. I'd, I'd make a couple points, I guess. First, um, one is 
making progress is often a, a challenging um, effort. Uh, we, I, affirmatively embrace the challenge of a climate emergency. It is real. We know it's here. We're already seeing the impact. And as a community, we must embrace uh, real investment and change to move forward and do the things we ought to do as a community for, for climate change. And progress is difficult. It, it You know, different people have a different judgment of how fast we should go or what we should do first. And that's okay. That's what a democracy is. And so I don't view compromise or finding a path forward among different views of a path. That's kind of what democracy is. We we work together to do that. So that's one point that that's that's just kind of built in that you've got to debate and and uh, discuss and pick pick steps to take and just pick some good steps to keep getting better. And the the second point uh, I'd make is just that it really is true whether you're talking at a global level or you're talking at a community level that it it really takes a collaboration among lots of different folks. Um, city government produced a climate action plan. We got a lot of input from people around the community, but in the end, city government can't be the only actor in this. Uh, we're a very small part of the overall carbon footprint of our community. Uh, and so we really need to be involved thinking about how do all our buildings work, not just city buildings, but the vast majority of privately or separately owned buildings. What kind of energy profile do they have? How do we all get around in the community? Again, not just on city buses or city employees, but how do the 85,000 people and the millions of visitors, how do we get around? And what's our transportation impact? Uh, so regionally, how do we live? Where do we live? How, how do Choices of, of how we let people live and how we make it possible to live in certain areas has real impact. So those two things. One, compromise is not bad. It's progress. We want to keep moving forward and figuring out how to get better and better. And two, it's really a, a wide collaboration that it's going to take among government, nonprofit, individuals, institutions, businesses. Uh, all are going to have to be uh, working together. That's one of the reasons, frankly, i have been proposing a green ribbon panel or some kind of gathering of all those voices at, at a community level to help us talk about how to make progress. Well said. I think I think that would be amazing. I know I think uh, Council Member Suze Gamberleri uh, mentioned, yeah, she asked uh, Lauren Clemens uh, when she was giving her presentation about like if there are any direct steps that Monroe, like that Bloomington could do with collaboration with Monroe County. And I think Clemens suggested solar energy would be like the most like the next step for both of us, um, kind of collaborating together. Solar energy is really important. Uh, we've dramatically improved, uh, increased the city government's own solar energy um, profile, if you will. In fact, more than half, I think about three quarters of the energy that the city government uses ourselves directly is solar generated. That's separating out the water utility, which is a big energy user itself, and they have challenges. We're working on solar. They've got some. But if you take them out as a separate entity, city government's 70, 75% solar-powered for our for our uh, uh, electric uses. So that's good. But, you know, there's so much more we need to be doing. Um, and there's lots of things council could do by ordinance and that the county could do by ordinance for disclosure of energy uses or, uh, uh, you know, continue to invest in, in what we should be investing in. So on a similar vein, Biden's Build Back Better bill uh, might not include the paid family leave anymore. And I'm just kind of curious, is that something that local governments could still implement if they wanted to? 
Well, it's frustrating that we're not uh, getting from Congress, uh, and I know they're working hard out there, and I sure hope they can get it done to get both the both the kind of the physical or the hard infrastructure bill and the soft infrastructure bill. I think they're both really important. Uh, I strongly support uh, uh, you know major investments in both of those, um, including paid family leave. Yes, locally we can do paid family leave, and actually the 2022 budget for the first time. So as far as I know, in Bloomington's history, we have a paid family leave program we're putting in. Uh, we're going to work on it during the first half of the year and implement it in the latter half of the year. We put some money in. We're going to we're going to start with, um, I think, six. We don't know exactly what we'll have, but at least six weeks of of paid family leave. That's a new thing. It's important. I wish the state would do it. I wish the government, national government, would do it. But in the meantime, we're going to try to do it ourselves here locally. I am incredibly glad to hear it. That is awesome. It's so important. It was something that we've been working on for several years. Um, so important to help uh, people navigate the challenges of work and family. And we're the about the only major industrialized country on the planet that doesn't have this. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it is something that we're trying to do locally, just as we're trying to do some daycare subsidies locally through city government. We're trying to do a paid family leave program. I do hope I do hope the national government will pass it. It'll help us move faster and farther. Mm-hmm. Talking about collaboration between local entities and national entities, guns, gun control. Uh, there was a lockdown at Bloomington South High School a little bit ago, the second one in two months. And at the Monroe County Community School Corporation board meeting, Many concerned parents spoke out about their kids still experiencing anxiety over returning to the school. How does the local government work with the school board and other entities to ensure residents' safety against guns? Well, it's a great question, and I I work as mayor regularly with the school corporation and, and of course, other partners uh, to try to make sure everybody's safe. But I, I will tell you this is an area of great frustration one of the things the mayor worries about, I think many of us, I know I do, is that it when will when will the spotlight swing? Um, virtually every meeting of mayors, there's some city that's had a horrific, uh, terrible mass casualty shooting uh, in the last six months or year, and whether it's Las Vegas or San Bernardino or Orlando or it, you know. Uh, uh, you can list Charleston or Pittsburgh. You can you can you name them. Many of them um, that we know, and it's so frustrating that we can't do more to protect our own people from guns. Um, I'm not allowed under Indiana state law, which is one of the most conservative pro-gun uh, regimes in the country. I'm not allowed to do virtually anything locally to restrict. Uh, the carrying, the use uh, of guns. Uh, I can't stop a gun from being carried in our July 4th parade. I can't stop a a, a, a person visiting our public pools from carrying a, ga- a handgun around the pool uh, under state law, and that's a uh, that's a bad and and terrible situation. Now, in the midst of that, with so many firearms around us, our our people are safe. Generally, our kids are safe. Our community does a great job of keeping everybody safe. But we do need better gun control laws. Uh, we 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 have a gridlock on that. Uh, that that the national government and the state government are not doing what the people want. So that's very frustrating. But in the meantime, we take lots of steps to try to make sure everybody's safe. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that is frustrating. And I know a lot of parents were asking for like metal detectors and clear backpacks and steps like that. And I mean, as someone who was in high school, maybe maybe six years ago, seven now, <laughs> Uh, like even back in the day when I was there, like things were getting way more strict and like you weren't allowed to go into the high school unless you had signed in a certain way and things like that. Um, and that was stressful. And I just feel like we're putting, and nowadays it's like way more, we're just putting a lot of the stress onto the, the wrong people. <laughs> I agree. I, I would say, you know, I really appreciate, I know how hard our school board, our school superintendent, uh, and all our teachers and all the folks uh, leading the school system, how hard they work to avoid uh, a fear-based or a, or a stress-based kind of system. It's so important our schools are welcoming and open and inclusive and, 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 and focuses of learning. Um, and, and I think we do a really good job locally from, from those folks I mentioned to do that. Of course, you have to be cognizant of threats, but you can't let them. You can't let that wreck your school system or turn you into a stress-based kind of system. So I really appreciate it's hard. Uh, there, there are always people who would do it a different way or want to second-guess decisions. But I know focusing on young people and the kids and the education and having a positive atmosphere and having a welcoming atmosphere and a nurturing atmosphere is. It's so important, and I appreciate how hard people work to make that happen here locally. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think we're out of questions unless there's anything else that you would like to say to our listeners. I think you got it. I uh, I hope everybody enjoys fall, the brisker weather and the beautiful colors. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Be well. If you have any questions send us an email at wfhb.org or give us a call. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.